Our theme is Lift Him Up. Today we're going to look in detail at this concept of lifting up the causes of Christ. Lifting up the causes of Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray that you give me clarity of mind today as I preach. And Lord, that you would give me stamina. Uh, Lord, that I would not wane or that I would not uh, give less than my best. And God, these sweet people, these wonderful people have gotten up today and gotten themselves ready. And they've come to church, Lord, to be fed the word of life. And so I pray that you'd help me to deliver that bread, the bread of life, to them uh, just exactly how you want me to do that. Lord, I do pray that each individual would sit up straight and tall. That they would uh, set the, the preoccupations of the world to the side. And Lord, they would set the distractions of the world to the side. And God, they'd give their full attention and their full heart to your scriptures today. And God, I pray that we would value them. I pray, God, that we would hold ourselves to them. And Lord, we would do our best to practice them. And Lord, I do pray today that you'd help us as we look at this truth of lifting up your causes. Lord, to understand why exactly it was you came to earth. Not just the obvious reason, but Lord, all the reasons why you came to earth. Lord, as we grasp that and understand it, I pray that we would be more refined in our lifting you up so the world around us can see you more clearly and be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This year, as we continue to lift up Christ, we do so with the promise that comes from His Word. You're in John chapter 10. Flip over just a page or two there to John chapter 12 and look with me at verse number 32. There the Bible says, and if you haven't memorized this verse yet this year, let me really encourage you to memorize it. It is our theme verse for the year at our church. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Jesus gives us a, a promise that if we adequately and appropriately lift Him up, then all men, if they see Him clearly, if they see Him uh, as He is, they will be drawn to Him or magnetized to Him. Now, let me just be clear. There are times where people see Christ and they resist the drawing. Not everyone comes to Christ, but all men are drawn to Him. They're drawn to Him. Scripture teaches that if we will make a big deal out of Jesus, if we will elevate Him both individually and corporately, then people will be drawn to our Savior. Uh, I've heard comments come from other people at various times about, look at the attendance of our church and it's not where it could be or where it should be. There are more people who are not in church on Sunday than are. And by the way, if everybody in Stratford came to our church on Sunday... Oh my, where would we put them all, right? Uh, and no doubt that through the centuries of our country, uh, people have been going to church less and less and less. But I will say this, if you're here today, it's because you want to be. Amen? Not just because the culture dictates it. And let me say thank you. You say, Pastor, how are we going to get our church to grow? We're going to get our church to go by properly, appropriately, and together lifting up Christ exactly as He is. That's how the church grows. It's not built around a man. It's not built around a personality. It's not necessarily built around some secular ideology or some quick fix out of a book. God's church will grow when the Son of God is lifted up and held high. He will draw people to Himself if we will properly and carefully do that right there. So far in 2017, we have elevated Christ 
through the Sunday morning sermons by looking at these topics. In the month of February, we looked at very closely the character of Christ. In the month of March, we looked in great detail both morning and evening at the cross of Christ. In the month of April, we looked in great detail at the compassion of Christ. And this morning, I would like for us to consider the causes of Christ, the causes of Christ. All right, question for you. How many of you have either worked for a company or are currently working at a company that has a posted mission statement that is very visible? How many of you can hold your hand up and say, I either do or have worked at a company with a mission statement that was visible? Okay, I used to work at a company called Super Value. They were a grocery distribution company, and I worked picking uh, uh, slots and selecting product and building pallets, and I did that for a couple of summers uh, while I was in college. And You walk out into the warehouse... And there's this huge vinyl banner. It must have been 20 feet long and 10 feet high. It was a huge warehouse. And it had the mission statement that could be read from a long, 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 long ways away. And it was done in such a way that kind of drew you into wanting to read it. And after I read it three or four times, I stepped back and said, I feel like such a nerd because I keep reading this thing. right? Uh, But the mission statement was very clear. It was to elevate the needs of the customer and take care of the needs of of its employees, and it was very specific as far as what those two things were. Did you know that when Jesus walked the earth, He had a mission in mind? He had a purpose for being here? There were causes that brought Him to earth. Christ did not just come to earth for the fun of it. This is really a drawback in a lot of religions. I can live my life, and if I'm good enough, uh, God will let me into heaven based on my own merit and my behavior. And then I'm left to sit there and scratch my head and say, if I can get to heaven based on me and how good I live, then why in the world did Jesus hang on a cross? What was that all about? Jesus didn't come to earth to hang on a cross just for the fun of it. There's nothing fun about that. Jesus didn't live the riches of heaven to come and be born in the poverty of man. Jesus didn't live the, the, the splendor of worship where the angels and, and, and the beasts uh, constantly bow down to Him and elevate His name and praise Him in, in utter perfection to be born amongst the squalor of mankind and their sin. Just, just to do it. No, He had a purpose in mind. He came with some objectives. Now, here's the, point, here's the point I want you to get in the introduction this morning. If you and I can understand all the causes as to why Christ came, this will help us to better understand our Messiah. This will help us to get behind those causes. This will help us to live those causes. And as we attempt to lift up Jesus Christ in our lives... The better we understand who He is, the better we'll be able to do that. The better we'll be able to do that. Imagine, if you would, that you have that brother or sister. And some of you may, and if so, I'm not picking on them per se. But imagine that you have that brother or sister that just embarrasses the family. Embarrasses the family. And everywhere they go, they just ruin the family name. Some of you may have been the younger sibling coming up through the same school. Right? And as soon as the teacher saw your last name on a roster, they rolled their eyes. Oh, man, here comes another one of those. And you got in the class, and you were different than your siblings. And you knew you had to overcome the reputation year after year that they had left you. Some of you may have come in behind a stellar reputation, and you were that troublemaker. 
And they saw your name and oh, good, I get another one of those. And two weeks into the year, they're going, oh, how come you can't be like your siblings? Here's the greater point I'm making today. If you live your life, if you live your life calling yourself a Christian and not representing Christ clearly, why would anybody be drawn to Him? You're living your life embarrassing the, 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 the testimony of Christ. And you're lifting up a very distorted view of who Jesus is. Nobody's going to be drawn to Him because of you. Nobody. Nobody. You say, Pastor, I don't get it. I invite people to church that know me and nobody ever comes. Could it be that your version of Christianity flat out stinks? Could it be that your version of Christianity uh, just isn't really attractive to them? Lift up Christ. The better you understand Him, the more purely you can hold Him up. This morning, let's look at four causes as to why Christ came. Uh, let's try and understand them and then try and put them into practice. Let me say this morning before we get into the four causes, there were three different times in the Bible that were distinctly different where Christ stated, I am come and then gave the reason. Now, I think that if Jesus said, I am come, and He's given the reason, we probably should understand those reasons. How many you agree with that statement? Okay? Uh, one time, John the Baptist gave why Jesus came. And so we're going to topically look at today those four times in Scripture uh, uh, that line up as being distinctly different as the fulfillment of Christ's mission or His causes here on earth. Number one, notice this. Christ came to consume. Christ came to to consume. Turn uh, with me over to Matthew chapter 3. We'll be in John 10 at the very, very end of the sermon. And uh, I, I thought that was a good launching point for us because it, it kind of lays the groundwork as to why Christ came or one of the reasons. But Matthew 3 in your Bibles. And we're going to work from left to right uh, through the Gospels as to why it was that Christ came. Matthew chapter 3. Here we find uh, the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist. And he is labeled as the forerunner to Jesus, or he prepared the way for Jesus. And he says about Jesus before he begins his earthly ministry, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, uh, what does the word baptize mean? Okay, I indeed baptize you with water. Now, hang tight with me because if the whole doctrine of baptism has had you confused, you're about to get a lot of things explained to you and made crystal clear. Uh, good doctrine, sound Bible teaching, okay? Buckle your seatbelt, here we go. The root word for baptize in the Greek is the word baptizo. Now, I know anytime a pastor says Greek, everyone goes to sleep on me, okay? Stay awake, don't go to sleep. Baptizo, baptizo. And the word baptizo means to submerge or it means to consume. Submerge or consume, okay? Now, with that in mind... Can a baby be baptized by water? I'm talking about a newborn baby be baptized by water and survive. How many think that would be a really bad idea? To take a baby and dunk them below, totally submerge them in water. Babies don't know how to hold their breath. You'd drown the baby. You say, but pastor, I was baptized as a baby. 
And, and as kind as I know how to be to you, I'm just going to tell you, you can't find anywhere in the Bible where it says that babies are to be baptized. If you can, bring it, show it to me. Now, I've read the Bible cover to cover over and over and over and over again. It's not in there. It's just not in there. Uh, you say, but I was baptized as a baby. Did that? Does that harm me? No, there's nothing. And by the way, the, the, the Protestant or Catholic version of baptism is to dip your fingers in water and sprinkle the baby. Okay, That's not baptism by the true definition of what baptism is. There's no submerging or consuming that goes on. Uh, so when the Bible talks about baptism... Baptism, the water baptism over here. We have a baptistry. It was just redone here recently. It looks great, but uh, the the baptismal pool. This baptistry water right here. There's nothing magical about it. This right here. This does not wash away anybody's sins. Amen. Ba- baby baptizing right there. Um, <laughs> there's no uh, washing away of sins in that pool. All that happens right there is that you get identified with Christ. My wife is sitting in the back back there. Uh, she's the well. She's the, the best looking girl in the room, uh, by my opinion anyway, in the back. I wear a wedding ring because I don't want any women hitting on me. Amen? One time I left this at home. Boy, it was rough. That's not a true story. Amen? Um, uh, I wear this for a couple of reasons, but the primary reason is I am proud to be a married man. Now, if I slip this off my hand, I'm still married. In fact, if I lost this and I went throughout life until I ordered a new one, it doesn't make me unmarried. You can be saved and not be baptized. Why do I wear my wedding ring? Because I'm proud to be married. You know, Jesus Christ hung on the cross naked, and He bore your sins in His body. He wants you to be baptized. You say, but that's embarrassing. I'm sure glad He wasn't embarrassed to you when He hung up on the cross. Is it embarrassing to wear a wedding ring? shouldn't be embarrassing to get baptized. It's a simple step of obedience. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. If you haven't been baptized yet, this is where it happens right here. We simply put you under the water. Why do we put you under the water? Because again, the word baptized means to submerge. Here Jesus said that he, or rather John the Baptist said about Jesus, that he had come to baptize, not by water, but baptized by two things, the Holy Spirit, and by fire, by Holy Spirit, by fire. What's that mean? That means to be consumed. Now, when you got saved, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit took up residence in you. Letter A of, uh, of the point here is this, consumed, letter A, by Holy Spirit fulfillment. By Holy Spirit fulfillment. John the Baptist said of Jesus, look back down there at verse 11, uh, toward the middle of the verse, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, you and I, if you've been saved any length of time, you understand how this works, right? You got saved, the Holy Spirit took up residence. The Holy Ghost took up residence inside of you. You became consumed with the Holy Spirit. He moved into your spirit and He lives there. He lives there. Now, however, when John the Baptist is explaining this to these people, the Holy Spirit did not... That wasn't the era of time they lived in. Jesus said to His disciples, I've got to leave you. 
I've got to leave and go back to my Father so that I can send the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit unto you. He's got to come down unto you and He can't do that until I ascend to heaven. And so, in the book of Acts, you have one time when the Jews received the Holy Spirit and another time when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And now when a person gets saved, the Holy Spirit consumes them. Why did Jesus come? He came so that you and I could be baptized or consumed with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus wants that to happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this. This was after Jesus resurrected back to, back to heaven and the Holy Spirit had taken up residence inside the hearts of those who were saved. He says this, Paul says this, he says, For by one capital S Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and, uh, and have all, have been all made to drink into one Spirit, one Spirit. We're baptized by one Spirit. You ask, Pastor, why did Jesus Christ come? He came so that you and I could have the Comforter of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. There is, however, another type of baptism. You see, everyone who lives, every human being, is going to be baptized by Jesus in one of two forms. Either you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit upon salvation, or letter B, He will baptize you or consume you by Hellfire. Hellfire. Look back down at verse 11 there, toward the very end of the verse. It says there, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Verse 12, Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, Jesus would expound on this thought by John the Baptist. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we have a parable here of Jesus, verse 24. We have a parable of Jesus where He's explaining further what that means where He will he will gather up the chaff and He will burn it in the fire. He will consume or submerge it in fire. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, the Bible says... It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy, this would be the devil, came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath, then hath it tares? He saith unto him, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he say, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So God is using the analogy of a farmer who goes out and sows good seed there in the ground, the good seed of wheat there in the ground, and uh, somebody, an enemy, uh, comes along and he puts in weed seed in the ground called chaff. And chaff grows up to look like wheat, but it isn't wheat. It is false wheat. It is it, it does not produce wheat. It just looks like wheat. It is a counterfeit version of wheat without the actual content. Now we know that the sower is God. And God sowed the good seed when He created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in humanity. But what happened? Satan came along and he sifted. He rather sowed in amongst God's good wheat the tares of sin. 
And the angels came to Jesus and said, should we gather together the sinners? And should we uh, 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 consume them now that way the good seed is left? And Jesus said, no, let the good seed and the bad seed, let the wheat and the chaff grow up together. And at the end, at the harvest, this is the judgment of Christ, I will gather them all together. I will have one judgment for the chaff. I will have another judgment for the wheat. And the tares, rather. I will have one judgment for the tares, another one for the wheat. The tares I will bundle. And I will cast into fire. The other, the wheat, I will gather and they will enter into my kingdom. You see, God does not want to send anyone to hell. Hear me on this. But God sends people to hell. Say, Pastor, is hell a literal place in the Bible? It is. You know, there's more in the Bible about hell than there is about heaven. Quite a bit more in the Bible about hell than heaven. Hell is a real place with fire. Say, but Pastor, I thought that God is love. And He is love. We're going to look at that in great detail tonight. I hope you'll come back. I'll give you a promo for that here in a bit. But God is love. But to the extent that God loves you, to that same degree, God hates sin. He loathes sin. He despises sin. And if a person dies with sin in their heart and a rejection of God's plan of salvation, God gathers those sinners together where the sin has not been separated from the heart but through salvation. And He will have them burned in hell for all eternity. You say, Pastor, God is love. Yes, and God is also wrath. He's wrath. The Bible says, my God, our God is a consuming fire. Consuming fire. There will be a day where God gathers together the souls of men who've rejected His plan of salvation and He casts them in outer darkness. Casts them in outer darkness. You say, Pastor, I don't want to go to hell. How do I avoid in eternity and outer darkness and and languish and pain and suffering and being burnt how do I how do I avoid that? My friend, Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and in His death on the cross, He was converted into your sin. And as He hung on the cross and became your sin, He suffered your hellfire for you on the cross. You don't have to go to hell. But unless you are willing to turn and look up at the cross and receive that sacrifice... That's exactly where you'll end up. You see, when a person puts their faith and trust, and they believe in Jesus, He forgives them that sin. He separates that off their record. And He gives them the Holy Spirit of God to consume them. You're either going to be consumed by the Holy Spirit, or you're going to be consumed by fire. Why did Jesus come? He came to make that abundantly clear. Point number one of the message, Christ came to consume. Point number two, Christ came to complete. Christ came to complete. Matthew chapter 5, look down with me if you would, at verse number 17 uh, there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Please uh, follow along here. Or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to 
fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, uh, uh, not one jot, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whatsoever therefore uh, shall break, or rather, whosoever therefore shall break one of the, these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me take a, 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 a common a statement made by Christians, and let me just throw it out on its head right now. People will make this. People will make a statement like, "But pastor, that's in the Old Testament, so that doesn't count." Don't get caught saying that. Jesus Christ said, "I came not to destroy the law, not to do away with the law. I came to complete." The Old Testament is the foundation of truth. The New Testament is the framework that sits on the foundation of the Old Testament. Altogether, it makes for the building where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation. You can't sit there and say, well, the Old Testament, that's in the Old Testament, it doesn't count. Now, God did in the New Testament do away with some of the dietary laws and some of the civil laws and some of the sacrificial laws that are in the Pentateuch, but the moral laws are the moral laws, whether they're Old Testament or New Testament, and we are to abide by them. Don't ever get caught up saying, well, that's in the Old Testament, it doesn't count. No, 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 no. Um, I even, listen, I've even heard Christians say this. If it's not repeated in the New Testament, then we don't have to abide by it. Don't say that. Don't say that. God gave us the whole canon of Scripture because it all applies to us today. Every part of it. Let me help 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 you understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. By the way, Christ had to explain this because he was walking in the synagogues and he was teaching and preaching and people were stepping back and going, man, where did this guy come from? He doesn't sound like anything like the scribes and the Pharisees. And they thought that maybe he was trying to to teach them a new uh, uh, Bible, a new teaching that was in contrary to the Old Testament or to the Torah. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, hold up just a minute here. Listen, I may... I may contradict the traditions of the elders, but I will never contradict the Scriptures. I will never contradict the law. I'm here to add to it. How, do, how does this work together? The Old Testament is the law. It shows us where we fall short. The New Testament is a book of grace that takes that gap of where we fall short and gives us a way to cover that gap through the blood of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. The Old Testament laws were accompanied with substantial, listen closely, substantial earthly and eternal consequences if broken. I've used this before in the church uh, some time back, but I'll use it again here. In the Old Testament, if you were caught being blatantly disrespectful to your parents, you were supposed to be taken outside the city and stoned. How many of you here would have already been stoned at some point in your life? How many think we should gather up all the teenagers on the property right now? And No, I'm teasing. So she's like, no, not me. Um, that, that's not how it works in the New Testament. You're not gathered up in stone. However, it's still a sin to be disrespectful to your parents. 
By the way, the eternal consequence in the Old Testament and the eternal consequence in the New Testament are still the same. What is the eternal consequence of sin? It's hell. It's hell. If you died in your sin in the Old Testament, you went to hell. you died in your sin in the New Testament, you went to hell. Still substantial consequences. The New Testament is a book of grace. The Old Testament is a book of law. The laws remain the same into the New Testament, but some of the consequences change just a little bit. If you disrespect your parents today, you're not going to get taken out down to some pit and be stoned. However, there are still consequences for your sin. In the Old Testament, if a man committed adultery against his wife, or rather a woman committed adultery against her husband, she was taken out and she was stoned. We don't do that today. But what happens if a woman commits adultery against her husband? Oh, the hurt. Oh, the, oh, the grief. Oh, the relational struggles. The damage that's done to the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. The consequences have changed. But the law remains the same. Let me give you another thought here on this. Jesus said he came to, he said he came so that he could complete the law. Let me give you another challenge here. Some people will say, well, I live in the era of grace and so I have liberty to live however I want. You do have some liberty in Christ. What did Paul say? That we're not to abuse the grace of God. God forbid, he said, that we should do that. Here's the truth for you. If you're taking notes, I recommend this is a short little quirk you can write down and take with you. The law requests, or rather, grace requests more than the law requires. Grace requests more than the law requires. What did the law require? Uh, Thou shalt not kill. Did it say you couldn't hate? No, it didn't say you can't hate. Thou shalt not kill. What did Jesus come along? He came to complete the law. Jesus said in the same sermon in Matthew 5, He said in the same sermon, He said this, He said, uh, 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 He said, if you hate your brother, then you're guilty of murder. Boy, here's the standard for the law. Christ came in and said, yes, the consequences are changing, but I'm going to up the ante on you. I'm going, to up, I'm, going to, I'm going to take it up on you a little bit here. It's not just about not, murder, not committing murder anymore. You shouldn't even hate anybody. Because you're guilty of the desire to commit murder in your heart. What did the Old Testament say? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Did it say you couldn't lust? No, it didn't say you couldn't lust. Jesus comes along and says, it's not just about the law. It's about the spirit of the law. Men, Matthew 5.28, if you even look at a woman... And lust after her in your heart. It's the same as committing adultery in the eyes of God. The law, the law's here. Grace takes it up here. Grace requests a higher standard than the law requires. The law requires. Christ said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to complete the law. So this attitude of, well, that's in the Old Testament. Let's, let's not, Let's not fall into that trap as Christians. Let's, let's hold high the laws of the Old Testament and let's obey them. Christ came, number one, Christ came to consume. Number two, Christ came, uh, uh, number two, Christ came to complete. Number three, uh, Christ came for our commitment. Turn over to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Matthew chapter 10 verse 34. And here we're going to see that Christ wants your commitment on a much, much deeper level than most Christians actually give Him. Look there at verse 34. It says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Okay, Jesus, why did you come? 
I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance, or in opposition against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, most daughter-in-laws are in opposition to their mother-in-law. I don't think they need much help from Christ there. Verse 36, And a man's foes shall be, uh, uh, shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. What did Jesus say here? He said, uh, I want you to love me more than your family. You say, well, hold it, hold on a minute, Pastor. Just, just wait a minute. I thought that Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. And here he says he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. Now, how do you get that to line up? How does that work? Here's the truth. Jesus is the most peaceful figure in all of history. But Jesus is also the most controversial figure. In all of history. All of history. This week, and this fits well with it being Memorial Day weekend, this week I read several stories about brothers and best friends who who, um, uh, chose different sides in America's Civil War. An ideology, here's a greater point here, an ideology divided families. Divided families. And really what this is about is... The ideology of Christianity that divides families. One, and I, I probably spent an hour, hour and a half reading various stories looking for a good illustration. I don't know that I found a great illustration about brothers being against brothers, but I did find one story where one brother, uh, two brothers grew up in the South, and one brother felt that slavery was immoral, so he left his home in the South and moved up to the North to join the, uh, the, the Union Army and fight with them, and the brother stayed in the South and fought for the Confederate Army, and the two brothers loved each other dearly, but had chosen opposite sides, so it was the war of brother against brother, and they they were both writing their mother letters at the same time, and uh, uh, they were fighting in various different parts of the country. And, and but they did eventually uh, come down on each other with the Battle of Gettysburg. One brother pinned to his mom. He said, "Mom, I'm so sorry that I left the South." He said, "I feel that slavery is immoral, and I feel like that I ha- had to make a decision based on my own conscience. I hope after the war you'll accept me back into the family." And uh, he said, uh, "Today we sit around the campfire and we sing about the girls that we miss back home, and uh, they they are the ones that keep us. Uh, these girls are the ones that keep us uh, afloat and, and, and keep our, our morality high. The idea that we'll be able to go back to our girlfriend." and our wives and so we sing about them often the brother on the southern side writes a very similar letter and, and, and very similar in nature and, and then the next uh, day the letter uh, uh, picks back up and says uh, we're getting ready to face the, the south in the battle at, uh, at Getty, it, it, here at Gettysburg and the south is advancing up on us and we've been in retreat all the way to Gettysburg and the, the boy from the south writes in the letter and he says we're, we're on our way to Gettysburg and we're chasing the north out we're making them uncomfortable in their own territory it's just a matter of time mom until the south 
has their full freedom. And the, the boy from the north writes the next day and says, today we uh, uh, stopped on the hill in our retreat and we prepared behind rocks as the southern boys uh, uh, were going to come at us. He said, uh, I was fearful that my brother was going to come running up the hill as I stood behind the rock with my gun to shoot down at the Confederate army. He said, we shot and killed many of them. And, and then when we ran out of bullets, the general told us to charge and we used the bayonet in our gun and we stabbed and killed many men. He said, we gathered the rest of them up and, and, and we captured them. He said, I didn't see my brother anywhere out on that field, but I'm afraid I'm going to shoot and kill my own brother. The boy from the south wrote a letter to his mother and the letter said, uh, today many of my comrades fell in battle as we charged up the hill and the north stopped their retreat and turned and attacked us. He said, I survived, but barely. The next day, that brother said that he looked out across the way and he could see the, the, the campfire from the south and he was afraid that his brother might be over there. He wrote in his journal or a letter to his mother, he said, I'm afraid that my brother is going to die. The next day, as the battle continued, he looked down in the field. and There his brother lay shot and wounded and dying. He dropped his gun as the battle had proceeded past his brother. He ran over to his brother and he held him in his arms as he was dying. And that little boy, that young man in the in the Southern Army, he said, "Tell mom that I love her." He said, "In my back pocket are some letters I have written to her. Please make sure she gets those." And those letters are online, and you can see how they correspond with what's going on. That was one account I read. I read some other accounts of brother against brother and friend against friend that weren't so friendly. Where brother began to hate brother for fighting on the other side. Friend refused to be friend with someone who had chosen the other side. And Jesus said this, He said, There will be a division in homes because of me. Because of me. I remember my dad telling me that as he was a young man, 14, 15 years old, he was walking across a health spa parking lot on a Sunday afternoon on his way to play basketball. A church had rented that health spa on Sundays to be their church building. And as that church member came out of the church, he caught my dad in the parking lot and went through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there with a basketball in his arm and hair below his shoulder, he bowed his head and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. My dad began to go to that man's church, Calvary Heights Baptist Church there in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And he, he began to grow in the Lord. He got his hair cut and he changed his language and he changed a lot of his habits. He got a job and began to pay his way to go through a Christian school there, Central Baptist School in, in, in uh, Baton Rouge. And, and, uh, and, and he began to miss more and more family functions. One day he was heading out the door to go to church on a Sunday morning and his family was going on vacation or going on a day-long trip and they looked at my dad and said, you don't love us anymore, do you? You love the people that church more than you love us. My dad said, it's not that I love the church, it's that I love my Savior. They looked at him and said, we don't get you. We don't get you. You see, Jesus draws a line in the sand. Jesus gives you an ultimatum. He says, when you get saved, I want you all in and I want you to serve me. And if you want to be worthy of me, you've got to even be willing to, to, to have variance or opposition against your family. Let me just put it to you this way, Christian. You're at some family reunion on a Sunday afternoon and you know you've got Sunday night church. And you're looking at your watch and it's getting later and later and later. And it gets to about 5.15 and you think, you know what, i got church at 6 o'clock. 
And you pack things up and, and you're getting ready to leave and, and, and everyone else is just getting started, right? I mean, uh, they're expecting this to go late in the evening and say, well, we gotta go. And oh, there you go off to church again. Well, you don't understand. I love Jesus more than I love you. And you say, but pastor, but I love my family. If your family is gonna draw a line in the sand and say it's me or Jesus, then you are to pick Jesus Christ. He said, I am come looking for your commitment. Let me just step on some toes a little bit harder if I could this morning. How many believe every word of Scripture is true? Would you raise your hand? Every word of Scripture. You say, Pastor, you're baiting me. You're setting me up for a trap. I might be. You know, the Bible tells us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And then it says... But so much the more as you see the day approaching. How many believe Jesus could come at any moment? How many believe that? I do. I believe in the preeminent return of Christ. I believe that we're much, much closer now than we've ever been. Obviously, every day we get a day closer. I fully expect Jesus Christ to come back in my lifetime if I live to be the age of a normal man. You know, according to that verse, you're not supposed to miss church for anything. Now, I understand sometimes life commitments pull you away. But it's hard to pick a passage and be passionate about one while you're totally neglecting and ignoring another one. If your health allows you to be here, you need to be here. You need to be here. Why? Because you are, God is looking for your commitment. He's looking for your commitment. Not only is He looking for your commitment to church, He's looking for your commitment to Him in your daily routine, your daily habits, your devotional life, your walk with Him, your reading of the Bible, your praying. The Bible says day and night. Meditate day and night. And you're to do those things day and night. I would ask you this morning this. Christ came to earth and He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. There's going to be a time where there's strife between you and your family because they're rejecting Me and they're making you choose between me and them. And Christ said, I want you to wholeheartedly choose me even if it means straining your own family relationships. And I would ask you this this morning, how committed are you to Jesus Christ? My friend, I promise you, He's committed to you. He wants you to be committed back to Him. Remember what 1 Corinthians 1.18 says. It says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish. The Bible says it's foolishness. But unto us... Who are saved, the Bible says it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross. Foolishness. It's foolishness. But to us, it is the power of God. They look at you going to church. They look at you involved in church stuff. They look at you involved heavily in your faith with the Lord. And they say, why do you keep going up to that church house and listen to that bald-headed guy scream and holler and, and, and rant and rave about the Word of God? That's foolishness. But we that are saved, we know it's the power of God. Number four, we see here, Christ came lastly to conserve. There are probably other things that can be pulled out of Scripture along this thought process, but for sake of time this morning, we see here that Christ came to conserve. Go back to John chapter 10, where we started this morning. John chapter 10. Let me say to you today that of all you do is come on Sunday mornings, I'm thankful you come Sunday mornings. Keep on coming. Keep on coming. I hope that you understand that it is my duty to preach the whole counsel of God. And I I try my best to hit every topic at some point throughout the year or the years that I preach here and to preach the whole counsel of God. And so it's my duty to push you to come to church on Sunday night and Wednesday night and every other time we have a service. 
Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't love you if you don't. I still love you anyway. Amen? John chapter 10, look down at verse number 7. The Bible says there, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Uh, verse 10, we find the cause of which Jesus came. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come, here we go, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? He came to provide for you life. He calls himself in that passage the door. The door. Uh, he likes to use these analogies to help us to understand. How do you get into heaven? Is it through the door of good works? No. Is it through the door of church attendance? No. Is it through the door of religion? No. No again. Is it through the door of being a Baptist? Absolutely not. Jesus is the door. He's the door. Here's the thing. When you walk in through the door of salvation, walk in through the door of salvation through Jesus Christ, you have this plush green pasture that you get to eat off of called the Bible. And you have this shepherd named Jesus Christ who looks to conserve your soul. Look down at, uh, uh, look, look down at the end of verse 10. We see letter A. He provides quality of life. He provides quality of life. Look at the very end of verse 10 there. It says, and that they might have it. How? More abundantly. What does that word abundantly mean? Boy, this is a rich word. It means beyond. It means extraordinary. It means more than expected. More than expected. You ever going over to someone's house and you know they're gonna, they're gonna cook for you and you're gonna have a meal and you get over there and then they go way over the top. I mean, they just feed you and feed you and the quality of food side and the service is exceptional and you step out and your head's spinning and you go, wow! That was not what I was expecting. Jesus says, listen, I promise you, if you'll step in through me and receive salvation through me, the quality of life that you're going to get is way beyond what you could even imagine. It is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Here the analogy is given of two different types of people as it pertains to the way that sheep handles. Christ says, if you want to come in through the door of my pasture, if you want the salvation, then I will protect you and I will provide for you the greenest of pastures where you can feast. He said, but if you don't want to come in through the door, then you've got Satan. you got Satan as your shepherd. And he's going to feast on your soul. Can I tell you today, Satan loves shish kebabs. So what does that mean? Satan loves veal. Satan is a big gyro fan. Or is it gyro or gyro? However you say that, right? Someone who speaks um, that language can correct me later. What am I getting at here? Satan loves to feast on the sheep of God. Loves to. Loves to take you down. Loves to hurt you. You say, how do I get away from Satan's influence? Walk through the door of salvation. That's the first step. And two, stay in the pastures of Christ. Stay in the pastures of Christ. Picture with me, if you will, that you're a shepherd and you've got your flock. And most of the flock goes along with where you lead them. And 
And, and they feast on the pastures that you, you, you take them to, and you take them down by, behind the cleft of a rock where the water is the stillest, and the sheep put their mouth down in there and drink. But you got one sheep who likes to wander over to the edge of the pasture where you have a fence. And instead of enjoying the plush grass, he likes to look outside the fence, and he's thinking to himself, who put this fence here? I want outside the fence! This legalistic, this legalistic shepherd, how dare they put this fence here? And you walk over to the sheep and you try to turn them around, away from the fence. Stop staring at the fence! Stare at the plush pasture! Go and enjoy! And that sheep is obstinate and he turns back around and goes, I can't believe someone would be so legalistic to put a fence here. You know, the Bible is filled with fences. It's filled with rules. But that's God putting a fence around the green pasture, the lush green pasture. And He's saying if you'll operate your life inside the boundaries of the Bible, I will conserve your soul. I will provide for you a quality of life that far exceeds your understanding. That that is over and beyond. It is extraordinary what you will get if you will stop staring at the fence and complaining about the rules of the Bible. Go along with them and I promise you, I promise you, I will provide for you a quality of life. Letter B, we see, naturally we see, He provides quantity of life. Quantity of life. You're in John chapter 10 there. Hold your place there. We're going to look at another verse down in the chapter. But for now, turn over to John chapter 3 in verse 15. You see, in John chapter 10, the Bible tells us that uh, if you'll go through the door, you'll be saved. It uses the word saved, which means to be rescued. Rescued from the peril of Satan and where he would take your soul. Rescued to a green plush Pastor and rescued two. Uh, the Bible says life there in John chapter 10, but that word life, it, it implies not just life here on earth, it implies an abundance of life, an eternal life. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 15. The Bible says that whosoever believeth in Him, this is that accessing the door mentioned in John 10, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have ever, but have rather eternal life. Eternal life. How long is your eternal, how long is that life for that you get when you walk through the door of Christ? It's forever. Forever, endeavor, endeavor, endeavor. Look back in John chapter 10, in verse 28. The Bible says, and I given them eternal life. Eternal life. Speaking of the life mentioned earlier in the chapter, I given to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. There are many, many reasons why I'm glad I'm saved. Many, 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 many reasons why I'm glad many years ago I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But maybe the greatest reason is this right here. One day I'm going to spend eternity in perfect splendor with God in heaven. You say, Pastor, how long is eternity? Eternity is a place where really time ceases to exist. Eternity is a place where really there's no reason anymore to even keep track with time. How long are you going to be in heaven for if you're saved? That's a difficult question to answer. Because 
How long indicates the tracking of time? And eternity implies that time ceases to exist. Now, there may be some time-keeping system in heaven. I don't know that. But will we be there a million years? A billion years? A trillion years? No, we'll be there longer. We'll be there longer. Quantity. Quality of life. You know, my friend, if I could finish the sermon right here, if I could have everybody's attention for about another minute or two and I'll be done. Just as I will spend eternity in splendor in heaven with God, I will also, there will also be those that spend eternity in outer darkness and hell. Why? Because they never accessed the door of Jesus Christ. They did not believe in Him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've not walked through that door of, of eternality, of trusting in Him, today is the day you need to do that. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. What were the causes of Christ? My friend, He came. He came on behalf of you. He wants to consume, submerge you beneath the blood of Jesus Christ, forgive your sins, and, and fill you, fill you, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He didn't just come to consume. He, he, he also came to, to complete the law through, through the bringing in of grace. He, he came looking for your commitment, Christian, your commitment to Him. He came, Christian, He came to conserve you. Maybe you're here today and, and you, uh, you, uh, have been, well, you've walked through the door, but you've been staring at the fence complaining about how God won't let you do this or that or the other. Maybe it's time to turn and rest in the conservation of Christ. How many, you, how many here today would say, Pastor, beyond all shadow of a doubt, I know that I have walked through the door and into the pasture of salvation. I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Here's my hand in testimony of that. I know, I know, I know, because Jesus has saved me, I'm going to go to heaven. You can put your hands down. Is there one here today that would say, Pastor, I just don't know that. Truth be told, I don't know that that the Lord is my shepherd. I don't know that uh, Satan has ceased to be my shepherd. I don't know that if I die, I'd go to heaven. And Pastor, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me as I search for the truth about how to get to heaven? My friend, my job here, to, my goal here today is not to embarrass you. It's just to pray for you. So with their heads bowed and eyes closed, you say, I don't know for sure I'm going to heaven. Would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? Is there one I just don't know? Who here today would say, Pastor, I know I'm saved, but my commitment to Him has waned. I'm not as committed to Christ as I ought to be. I've not been resting in His conservation like I ought to be. Pastor, pray for me that I will, I will up my commitment to the Lord. I will up my uh, a trust in the Lord. Something in the message today has spoken to your heart. Would you just slip up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me that I'll work on these areas. How many here today say, Pastor, I'm carrying a very heavy emotional load on me. I'm going through a a struggle, a trial in my life. And I just need to know that the Lord is near me and dear to me as I struggle. Pastor, I need your prayer. And I need a, a touch from heaven during this difficult time. Here's my hand. Would you pray for me? How many of you are like that? I see many hands. Lord, I do pray, that God, today that you'd help those that are hurting. 
Lord, You love them, and I pray that You would embrace them and hold them very close to You right now. Lord, I pray that we would more clearly understand the cause, the mission of why You came. Lord, we would more accurately and more purely elevate You in our lives so that others will be drawn to You. Lord, I pray if there's one here today that isn't saved, may today be the day He gets that settled. They get that settled once for all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet while the piano plays. Pastor Mike is standing down front here. If you have a decision you'd like to make the altars open, I would encourage you to come and kneel and talk to the Lord about whatever it is you're struggling with. If you're here today and you don't know for sure you're going to heaven, Pastor Mike's down front. He'd love to take the Bible and show you how you can know that for sure.